0: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network podcast. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Every month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in Genocide Studies. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Abdel Wahab El Effendi to the show. Abdel Wahab is a reader in politics at Westminster University in the United Kingdom and the editor of a fascinating new book, Genocidal Nightmares, Narratives of Insecurity and the Logic of Mass Atrocity. The book offers both a coherent, stimulating thesis and a wide variety of authors and case studies, and makes it all pull together into a nice package, something that's enormously challenging to pull off. It lays out a compelling case for the importance of narratives in the production of mass violence. I'm thrilled to be able to talk with Abdel Wahab about it today. So with that, thanks for being with us on New Books and Genocide Studies, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much having me. So why don't we start? Uh, I, I'd like to give you a chance to tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be interested in studying mass violence.
1: Yes, thank you very much. Uh, I am actually Sudanese by origin, uh, so that's sufficient. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, I've been living in the UK since uh, 1982, and while I was uh, uh, completing my MA and PhD here, I was also editing a magazine. I was the managing editor of a magazine called Arabia, a monthly, which used to cover Muslim affairs. And it was uh, uh, in that capacity that I was introduced to the Balkans the hard way. Uh, We used to cover um, Eastern Europe and uh, Central Asia. And then uh, one day I received a visit from an angry Bosnian delegation. Uh, who were very unhappy uh, that we were covering uh, Bosnia from Croatian sources. Hmm. Uh, And at that time, I, of course, had no clue about these complications, but we used to have uh, communiques from uh, an organization called itself the Croatian Muslim Association. Hmm. And it turned out that this was a cover for a nationalist uh, Croatian uh, group, which was claiming Bosnia, of course, and so I was introduced to these complications and uh, the way identity people uh, try to give others identity they don't want. <laughs> and that was really bizarre. However, the, the, <clears throat> I think um, the Balkan contribution for us has come from uh, uh, Markovic, uh, my dear friend, Markovic, who uh, was my colleague. In the, We used to have a, a summer school in, in Belgrade. Uh, the Center for Study of Democracy, which I work, and uh, his uh, organization there used to do it every uh, year. And uh, he was such uh, an insightful person about these things. <laughs> hmm.
0: So, so you chose political science, you're a reader in politics. Why that discipline?
1: Uh, that's interesting okay. because my original uh, discipline was philosophy, actually. I graduated ah, in philosophy. But I did my MA uh, thesis studying Karl Marx and his attitude mm-hmm. philosophy. And I think uh, that convinced me that uh, philosophy is not, uh, that politics <laughs> is. <laughs> it, it is a more uh, fruitful kind of um, thing to do.
0: So I, I tend to do in politics. So... I always like origin stories of books, hmm. and, and in the introduction or preface or forward, whatever it is here, you 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 point out that this book has been kind of in gestation, or at least the ideas behind it, you've been thinking about since the early 1990s. How did how did this book come about?
1: Yeah, I think that the the idea about the book is really uh, disarmingly simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, we encounter it every day, which is. When watching a movie, for example, and you see some um, uh, rough uh, muscular man uh, meets a little pretty girl on the beach, and then immediately start uh, attacking her, killing her, cutting her to pieces, uh, driving a, a sharp object through her heart burning her, and then you see, look at this, how awful. It's really repugnant. But if you have uh, the narratives in the narrative, just the sequence before was telling you how, for example, this vampire or evil cyborg has actually attacked that girl earlier and uh, now is taking her shape and trying to uh, to do evil things, then you would look at this as a heroic kind of saving of mankind from this evil thing. Mm -hmm. So I think the this idea about how narratives could change, how you you view violence uh, had been there, but I think the uh, I came to it through a tortuous route, because I was um, uh, when we set up this program here in in the uh, mid-1990s I was uh, puzzled by something in the Middle East, which is that we have a a lot of terrorist activities going on, and we also have uh, uh, despotic regimes all over. And from my study of terrorism, this is not supposed to happen. You are supposed to have terrorism in democracies. I mean, some, I think, of the theorists actually define terrorism uh, Mm. as some attacks in the context of democracy. Uh, so how come? And, and of course, we know why that uh, that's the case. I mean, you cannot uh, blackmail people like Stalin or even Putin mm-hmm. <laughs> by saying that I'm going to kill uh, nice innocent people and you have to no <laughs> do what I say. Um, uh, so why is this the case in the in the uh, in the, uh, the Arab Middle East? And I think I came across a solution by looking at some of the narratives of the of the people engaged in this. And I found, for example, that uh, when people like uh, Hafiz al-Assad, for example, uh, commit genocide in Hama, they have a narrative which showed that uh, this is not only a threat to his regime, which is uh, correct, but also to his uh, Alawite community and also to the Arab world and to the resistance. And this same rhetoric now is being used by by his son Bashar. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, I looked at narratives, for example, of some of the uh, uh, violent groups in Egypt, uh, and their also explanation is that they are heard about the terrible torture which people who are arrested uh, in the Egyptian jails endure, uh, and they decided that's better for them to die than be captured.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So they try to engage. So I this is where I found. This idea of narrative of uh, of insecurity and its immediate um, uh, call, immediate uh, effect on, on causing mm-hmm. these atrocities, and then of course I looked at Darfur. It was also a similar thing. So I began from that on to look at to explore this more and more. And the more I explored it, the more I found that <clears throat> this is uh, how uh, we can explain this. Uh, uh, sometimes sudden shift towards um, mm-hmm. the mass violence.
0: So, you, so you mentioned the, the idea of narratives of insecurity, and I want to come back to that in just a second. But before we get there, <laughs> in, in genocide studies and broadly speaking in, in, in studies of terrorism and, 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 and violence, there's kind of a lot, it's very typical to hear a lot of emphasis on definitions. And without getting bogged down too much in that, How are you defining these objects that you are studying? You say mass atrocities. What is it that you're trying to explain?
1: Uh, I think one of the significant contributions, I think, in the book is uh, defining mass violence. Because Mm -hmm. we have encountered that people try to define mass violence usually by looking at numbers. And I think that's an unfruitful uh, kind of approach. Uh, we define mass violence in terms of where the evidence points to the fact that the the perpetrator doesn't have a an upper limit on victims mm. that they are prepared to destroy in order to achieve their objectives. Uh, that would make, for example, killing five people or ten people or a hundred thousand. Uh, 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 because some atrocities, just a few people are killed. And uh, we can see, for example, from uh, clear evidence that, for example, the terrorists of 911 had no limit. They, d- they did not have a limit on how many uh, mm-hmm. victims they wanted. Or, for example, uh, Bashar Assad now in Syria uh, doesn't have any limit on whether direct or collateral damage. And there was no care taken to protect uh, civilians. So I think atrocity in this regard is uh, that violence where people just do not care, which I mm. think is uh, is probably uh, the best definition of mm-hmm. atrocity, which is also intuitive as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And one of the really nice things about your book is that the, the explanatory framework you use can... can apply whether you're talking about instances of terrorism or, or of massive violence or, or traditionally defined or, or genocide so so could you under explain a little bit what you what exactly you mean by the narratives of insecurity uh, briefly it's scare stories I mean the, um, people
1: who construct these um, uh, stories uh, uh, um, project a kind of um, a dire threat, uh, which is imminent and uh, present and, uh, and real. And um, they uh, frame the, uh, the argument to the people in, uh, in, this, uh, in this language, which will then uh, play on the fears of the people uh, you can find for example people speaking about uh, we started the story of uh, the norwegian um, uh, perpetrator of the massacre of Oslo who had this narrative that most muslim hordes are there to take over Europe uh, we had we heard this before about immigration <clears throat> we heard it about Jews we can hear it about blacks we hear it about uh, lower class people uh, all sorts of these stories which are coherent which are also plausible in, in some sense uh, so uh, it is usually just a scare story which is mm-hmm. being uh, uh,
0: bandied around So where do these narratives come from?
1: Uh, I think they are uh a number of, uh, of sources. Uh, there is usually prejudice. Uh, people are usually uh, have their own prejudices in, in societies. But uh, we uh, we found in, in this um, uh, research, for example, that intellectuals sometimes are a mm-hmm. uh, source of these uh, so because these stories have to be told. In a very coherent way. I mean, it's just not a. Uh, you can hear, for example, racist remarks from the man in the street. Mm-hmm. You can hear practices from old ladies. But in order for uh, this to become a real story, you have to have a credible source, a politician, uh, a, a maverick uh, uh, agitator. Uh, but uh, it could be a, from a sustained source, like, for example, a, a, a right wing group or a, a political uh, group or a group of intellectuals. Um, but I think what is uh, interesting in that, in these times, uh, and especially, for example, you look at the Yugoslav uh, story, mm-hmm. it was the intellectuals actually who did construct very plausible uh, narratives, which had uh, laid the ground for uh, for the shift. And, for example, these days, Islamophobic narratives come from very respectable intellectuals. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think one of the interesting elements in the Yugoslav case was that The intellectuals who uh, produced these uh, narratives were themselves former left wing Marxists. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were able to inoculate these narratives against possible criticism from that area uh, by showing that, for example, we were, for example, good Yugoslavs, we were good nationalists, we were good universalists, but we discovered uh correctly that this universalism is, is just one way street. Uh, mm-hmm. We are the only the Serbs, for example, or the Korwas are the only universalists, but everybody else is a nationalist, so we have to mm-hmm. look out look out for ourselves.
0: So so you've hinted at this so a little bit, but could you expand on this so so you've got this production of the narrative by intellectuals or other people. Um how is it that some narratives take off and others kind of die without ever getting any significant support or acceptance?
1: Um, I think, the, uh, for example, we have a, the, a famous example of a narrative uh, which died. That was the, uh, the famous Rivers of Blood, uh, mm-hmm. uh speech by Enoch Powell in England in 1968. Now, that was a narrative which first took off like wildfire. And a lot of uh, observers at that time thought that uh, Britain, if if that narrative has been allowed to go on, Britain would have probably become an early Serbia. Now, I think there the British uh, political elite, especially uh, Edward Heath, uh, the leader of the Conservative Party at that time, Took really decisive action and uh, ostracized uh, power. Also, the media and the British intellectuals in general played a very constructive role. Uh, now, uh, it depends on um, <clears> our <throat> on, on, on overall context. If narratives find a no resistance, they are usually uh, uh, they, they go through the, the the area of least resistance that they play on prejudices. Uh, we see, for example, examples of Islamophobia these days. Uh, it is uh, uh, it is moving fast, but it's also being countered by politicians, by intellectuals, by mainstream media, and so it is being contained. But we could see a uh, <coughs> A, a situation where it could actually take off, especially if we have corroborating evidence like for example, this uh, horrendous act by these uh, militant uh, groups uh, like Islamic state and so on and so on. Uh, I think in uh, uh, in Yugoslavia the, the, the breakdown of the whole order and the breakdown of the state and the breakdown of the also similarly in Rwanda, Usually, when the whole political order, the whole social order collapses, it can be easier. Uh, in Nazi Germany, for example, it was the state which was promoting them. That was an easy explanation there. But still, of course, we have to have intellectuals, we have to have uh, uh, media. But I think the role of the intellectuals is usually a very important role. So then
0: what... What advantages does this focus on narratives of insecurity offer in understanding this kind of violence?
1: Uh, I think, uh, as I, uh, I said about the movie, it, it shows that you don't have to be a different person, or you don't mm-hmm. have to be crazy. You don't have to be psychopaths in order to shift uh, into this direction. Because mm-hmm. if there's convincing narrative to tell you, for example, that uh, Muslims are danger they are going to take over, they are going to uh, uh, introduce barbarism, and so on and so on, and credible intellectuals, credible uh, voices telling you that, <clears throat> then the next step will be, uh, uh, as uh, uh, in the Norwegian case, some people would say the next argument is that the politicians, the leaders, are not doing what they should. do, And that's where terrorism, for example, comes from. Terrorism comes, there is a narrative, as in the Arab case, saying that, for example, the Israelis are oppressing us, the Americans are doing this, and the Americans are doing this. And even the politicians and the, the leaders say this, but then they are doing nothing about it. Similarly, if you have in Europe, the politicians speaking about immigration, about foreigners, about aliens, but they are doing nothing about it. Then you got the movements to say, let us do something about it. And then you get the right-wing extremist groups, you get uh, uh, the the, the individual terrorists, and so on and so on. So the the way uh, uh, narratives uh, uh, shape your world It doesn't, you don't need all these other explanations, which try to find, for example, that individuals must have had some psychological problems, they must have sins in their childhood, they must have, it must be poverty, it must be this, it must be that. You don't need all these explanations. You know that a rational being confronted with this kind of narratives, with this construction of the world, will see it as normal and even imperative that you have to do this. That uh, we have to move on. Uh, And the others who don't move, you regard them as people who are blind, who are being bought, are not doing their duty, and so on and so on. So the narrative uh, approach uh, is... A very clear and very cogent explanation, and doesn't have put you in the loops of trying to find why, for example, do these nice ordinary middle class people suddenly turn into Mm murderers?
0: So, a couple days ago, I was uh, I was interviewing Irvin Staub for a a podcast that will appear or that from the time this one will show up has appeared. Oh, a week or so ago, um, on his book *Overcoming Evil*, uh, and I asked him about the title and about the idea that the actions of these perpetrators are evil. Uh, what? How do you see that question about the more? Uh, let me put it this way. Is it the responsibility of academics to evaluate the moral quality of these behaviors, or just to explain how and why they happen? No, I think
1: I think it is. You cannot, I think, uh, omit this evaluation. I mean,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it doesn't make it less evil if it is uh, if it is explicable. I think we should mm-hmm. that explanation. Yes, um, uh, does uh, show us. Does remove some of the mystery about it. Uh, it might also appear to remove some of the um, uh, uh, of the responsibility, but I think uh, the one point we have uh, uh, looked at, which is as uh, as I mentioned, that the the the, um, the balance between structural agency, yeah, uh, in, in that in this uh, the narratives. The narrative explanation makes it um, uh, applicable that people had made a choice to believe certain stories, to accept them and to embrace them. So it's not something that is uh, you are a psychotic or you are not in control of you. Know, you have either chosen to believe this narrative or you have either constructed them yourself. And I think there are. Uh, 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 um, several levels of this. There are people who construct these narratives in some sincerity, that they really believe that there are problems,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and there are majority who actually construct these narratives in order, for example, to, uh, to further an agenda. Uh, they may not be uh, wanting to, to things to go to genocide. Uh, but they just, for example, want to serve their regime, or they want Mm -hmm. to scare their followers into following them. But then, it could lead to that. So there is, uh, uh, there are people who choose to believe these stories, and there are people who choose to resist them, Mm -hmm. and and there are people who construct these stories, and there are people who disseminate them, and there are people who actually, uncritically, Accept them, uh, and so there is a, an element here of agency. You are not, uh, you are not uh, being driven by some uh, unknown forces or by demons or whatever. Uh, and I think it this, this demystifies it, but also shows that you have a responsibility for for what you are, for what mm-hmm. you have uh, done. It's not it's it's, it's you cannot discount this.
0: Editors are in, a, in an awkward position Time sometimes in, in interviews like this of being asked to talk about essays that they read and they kind of critiqued, but they didn't write. And it's, it's unfair to ask you to talk about too many of them, but I would like to ask you about a couple of the case studies in the book, maybe three if we have time, and, and start with your own, since that's probably the easiest to talk about. and. We were chatting a little bit before the interview about the fact that as somebody trained in history who's picked up a little bit of international relations theory on the side, I had to teach myself about the Copenhagen School and reading this. Um, can you talk a little bit about what in, in, in what is kind of a meld of an introductory essay, but also a case study in your book? Talk about this theory of securitization and how you use that in this book.
1: Yes. Uh, uh, yes, actually, secretization Theory, uh, uh, one of its uh, authors, um, uh, Barry Buzan, was a colleague of ours here at the, at the mm. department. And so we had a uh, lot of deep discussion about these things. But um, uh, I think what I pick about secretization Theory, which uh, in part uh, shares with us the idea that uh, these narratives or the speech act about um, uh, is, the, um, is the ground of insecurity, that you can construct insecurity through speech. Uh, but I think my main um, uh, objection and also attempt to develop the theory further was that this theory assumes and takes for granted a democratic background. Mm-hmm. That the conversation they speak about can only take place and have the effect they mention mm. uh, in a democratic in um, uh, democratic atmosphere, and they are in denial about this. In fact, although they mm-hmm. um, they mention in several of their works that, um, oh, they uh, they of course uh, they assume democratization of this, uh uh, making it the starting point, they claim that this theory works in also non-democratic an uh, contexts, and they have case studies about China and others which mm-hmm. try to prove this. And I think the point I have made, especially with regard to this, uh, that uh, Secretary of was not would not explain atrocities. Because if you are talking about democratic theory, or democratic atmosphere and democratic debates about security, yes, of course, a number of the people I quoted uh, mentioned the securitization of immigration mm-hmm. and, and similar things which they see as dangerous and even uh, bordering on genocide. But it doesn't look plausible. So I, th- mm-hmm. I thought that we need to look at levels of secretization mm-hmm. That there is a level of securitization, which is healthy and acceptable, which societies need. And there is a level, which I call hyper-securitization, where you really go berserk about mm-hmm. this. And, uh, and so we have to look then at also regime types according to securitization, that liberal democracies, a lot of theorist of securitization theory, And and, and some of the critics who then come in speak about uh, liberal democracies as if they are Nazi regimes, which uh, which is a little bit over the top. I think (laughs) Uh, uh, I define uh, liberal democracies as minimal, by definition, minimal securitization regimes, Hmm. because Hmm. they think that we should allow more liberty, which means that they don't see a lot of things as threats. And then you have authoritarian regimes, which are maximum securitization regimes. And then you have genocidal regimes, which are called hyper-securitization regimes. Mm-hmm. So we need to develop. Yet yeah, the theory uh, is adequate for looking at securitization within democracies or semi-democracies, because they explain how we construct danger and how we could uh, move certain issues, for example, like immigration from just a policy issue to a security issue, uh, and so on. Uh, but uh, we need a little bit of development to move towards a. Uh, to, to explain genocide and mass violence, you need to go to. to uh, we introduce a new term of hyper securitization, mm-hmm. which is when really project uh, narratives of insecurity, uh, like the ones, for example, <coughs> Uh, um, uh, produced by regimes like Assad, for example, mm-hmm. uh, which purposes, I could look, for example, at a very uh, apt example in Egypt, for example. We had a maximum securitization regime in Mubarak time, where, for example, all opposition was seen as a danger to the mm-hmm. regime and to the international security and any uh, opponent will be uh, suppressed. Uh, now we had, when we moved to the Arab Spring, all this disappeared. Everybody was happy in the spring, and um, Islamists and Christians, everybody was mm-hmm. uh, was secure about each other. There was no fear. Now we moved to Sisi time, which uh, looks like a hyper securitization uh, mm. where the very existence of Islamists is seen as danger, and uh, mainstream Islamist groups are described as terrorists. And uh, you could see here uh, how these things happen, how, for example, mass Germany happened, how Rwanda happened, uh, in the sense that people create uh, insecurity this way, because if you treat everybody as enemy, then probably everybody becomes an enemy. <laughs> and so on. That that comes uh, to that situation. So uh, you can see how how this works. Mm-hmm.
0: So your essay is is a, at least a bit theoretical. Alex de Waal's essay on the Sudan is a little bit more historical. Can you talk about the narratives that that characterize the debate in the Sudan and the way in which the Sudanese people. Received and selected which narratives they were going to believe.
1: Yes, I, I, I think Alex, uh, yes, speaks also of a very uh, what he called the civility and barbarity uh, yeah. uh, paradox in Sudan, mm-hmm. which is also very very uh, interesting in the sense that yes, uh, you find that uh, narratives of insecurity has been um, rampant some of it were ethnic like in the most house but we had also uh, Islamist and left-wing uh, narratives. in the coup for example of 1969 uh, was uh, perpetrated there was uh, the left wing was saying that the country is going to go to the dog this the reactionary and so on and so on that's the usual thing so they arrested they killed they they, they did uh, whatever they, they do then Everything was forgotten. And then the Islamists came and also did the same, that Sudan is being threatened and so on and so on, Arab identity. Mm-hmm. But I think that the point which Alex looks at is that uh, the elite in Sudan are cozy with each other in spite of these uh, interesting, uh, and, and And he tries to explain this by saying that actually uh, most of the fighting happens in the periphery where uh, these uh, these elite, the elite, are in the safety of their cities, are unaffected. So they can afford to exaggerate and play up uh, the danger uh, for the benefits of these uh, people who are fighting. But they themselves, for example, would uh, would go to dinner with the same guys whom they describe as devil uh, to their followers. And they have a nice time and all of them. And he... uh, I think this is a a phenomenon which has been observed about Sudan and needs a little bit more study.
0: Yeah, I was really fascinated by his suggestion that what's, and and I'm imposing my words on rather than his, and maybe that's unfair, but by the sense that the actors in the Sudan are kind of the ultimate Machiavellians who are always looking out, or that's not fair, who take a distinctly political view of behaviors rather than assuming that there's something intrinsic about the people sitting across from them that make them friends or enemies.
1: Yes, I I wouldn't go that far. I think uh-huh. they are torn, in a sense.
0: Okay. They are, mm-hmm.
1: Sudan uh, had a long history of, of coexistence, and these elites have usually got to school together uh, in the colonial era, when there was a very small number of schools, and, mm-hmm. or were the army together, and so they are real friends of each other. But, of course, in the meantime, the uh, interests of their uh, constituencies have diverged mm. uh, quite uh, widely. And I think they are torn between maintaining this uh, kind of uh, old order uh, on the personal mm-hmm. level and, uh, and, and working out. And I think sometimes... They also produce narratives which run ahead of them. Uh, they can very easily make a sort of wild claims, which some politicians make as kind of exaggeration. Uh, they do not believe it, but maybe their followers and many others believe them. And then uh, they go there, and then they fight, and then they come and reconcile, and we have peace deals and all these things. Uh, and and there's uh, there's a kind of uh, what you call uh, nihilism or a mm-hmm. uh, kind of really uh, uh, uselessness about all this
0: pointless. Mm. Mm. So one of the observations I hear you saying is that that in fact narratives and this loops back to an earlier point in our conversation narratives might be generated by elites or other people, but in fact the events on the ground that narratives inspire can actually change the narrative itself beyond what the initial authors of the narrative expected it to be or to serve i think that's
1: that's putting it really accurately yes i think the the narratives then have a life of their own uh, mm-hmm. and also groups which are formed around these narratives they also then produce more uh, self-reinforcing narratives if you mm-hmm. Uh, if people started killing each other uh, after they were neighbors, for example, like in Darfur, people who were always neighbors and always uh, living uh, peacefully with each other, then they start killing each other. Of course, that has a backlash because then uh, the insecurity deepens. And then you sometimes they need stories to, um, to uh, justify what they have done things they themselves recognize as really atrocious and, and unacceptable mm-hmm. when you go and kill your neighbors. Uh, so they then produce stories about uh, uh, some foreign conspiracies, about uh, the other side being um, uh, instigated by some evil doers from so-and-so, and, and then this become reinforced. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I talked, for example, to uh, one of the so-called Arab uh, uh, gathering in Darfur, mm-hmm. uh, and he was one of the credited for uh, creating starting some of these Arab non-Arab thing. And when I talked to him, he was just a simple guy, and he said, "You know, all I wanted was to get a job."
0: Hmm.
1: He said that the, the ministries were given to other people, and none of our group has given given ministry. So I issued this communicate, say that the Arabs have been uh, so-and-so-and-so on sideline and marginalized. And he said, we got three jobs and ministries, and we we're happy. And that was the end of it. <laughs> of course, that was not the end of it for everybody else. Uh, and so, yes, you can have these uh, very mundane uh, concerns then bringing uh, other consequences, which this guy didn't actually
0: think about when he was when he was doing what he was doing. Huh. <laughs> what a story! That's a fascinating story. Let's let's shift to to, to a third essay, um, which talks well. So so it's the essay about Yugoslavia that Slobodan Markovic mm-hmm. writes, which is a wonderful essay and very rich. And I just wanted, and we can talk about it more if you'd like. But but specifically, I'd like to talk about this idea of narratives driven by statistics or arguments about statistics about relative loss or about how many people were killed or saved or whatever. Can you talk a little bit about yes, those I, debates over yes, statistics? That,
1: that's, that's very interesting because I, uh, they, uh, the debate in Yugoslavia has um, revolved around these atrocities and counter atrocities. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were disturbed. Uh, Vizuna camps during the Nazi occupation, which uh, Croats were accused of of manning and and helping. And there were then the massacres of uh, Croats after the war by the communist um, uh, insurgents. And uh, in both cases, uh, it has become uh, a matter of how many were. And each side began to inflate the numbers on their side while trying to actually minimize or even deny that anything has happened to the other side. Uh, And so uh, that was really intriguing, that numbers became a kind of of driver for narratives. But this is not actually isolated. For example, in Darfur, Hmm. the issue of numbers has become also uh, quite crucial for the... uh, uh, there has been, um, I mean, Mahmoud Mamdani in his uh, in his book uh, uh, on "Darfur Saviors and, Surviv- uh, Saviors and, uh, and Survivors" uh, tried, of course, to play the other side and see that the numbers were inflated and so on and so on. But this became part of the of the uh, of the debate itself, and it's not uh, we know, of course, about uh, the denial of the Holocaust and the numbers. Also, this is uh, a figure which is. Also become a feature, so I think this is this is usually part of the of this uh, of these debates that the people who are uh, on the on the perpetrator side or are, have sympathy with perpetrators try usually to play down the numbers. Uh, but yes, I think uh, uh, for me, I think uh, although I'm not expert in Yugos- on Yugoslavia, but mm-hmm. I've read a lot about it, and as I told you, I had in following it from the 1980s. But I think uh, it was very insightful the way uh, Slobodan has shown, for example, how this thing has been going on since the 1960s, the way uh, there were uh, these communist uh, prominent intellectuals on both sides, on the Croat side and on the uh, Serb side, who have
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, developed these territories and began, for example, to produce books just as the Yugoslav communist uh, uh, state was in twilight. And the way, uh, and this again explains how this narrative, I mean, the uh, the Serb book was uh, published, and they just printed, I think, 2,000 or 3,000 copies. Mm-hmm. But they were immediately sold out, and then another print, another print, and, print, and suddenly it became a bestseller. Uh, the same thing happened with, uh, with, uh, Twitchman's, uh, book, uh, which is interesting. But I think what is interesting also on the Serb side is that it was not actually Milosevic who started this, but the intellectuals. Uh, Milosevic then benefits from it. While on mm-hmm. this, on the Croat side, Twitchman, the intellectual, also became the leader. Which is uh, quite interesting in, in that, but uh, it is it is really fascinating about how these things evolve and then get a life of their own. I don't think, yeah. for example, the the guy who wrote the book anticipated this kind of reception mm-hmm. and creating a movement. But that happened, which is uh, uh, which is something also we need to look at how the mechanism happened uh, by which. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes we cannot predict uh, the, the, the impact of, of, of these narratives and how they go.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's back out maybe from talking about specific essays to talk about some broader questions. And the first is probably both the most obvious and maybe the most difficult to answer, and that's how do we take these ideas of narratives or these insights provided by the idea of narratives of insecurity and apply them in a practical way?
1: I, I think uh, uh, the first thing is that this is a clear early warning system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you watch the narratives, if you watch the stories, uh, then you can see how things are going to follow. Usually, there is a long lag between the stories and the actual violence. hmm And uh, one, for example, uh, example I I have um, noted, for example, in Egypt, uh, uh, since the beginning of 2012, there was a kind of really ugly narrative, which you see in the media. Mm -hmm. Uh, Demonization, hate, uh, real, real ugliness. And uh, for the general observers uh, who do not see the link they might look at this case it's really sad it's really uh, hmm. but uh, I think the lesson from our uh, uh, book is that these things should not be seen in this just trivial way hmm. that the first stage usually in in the uh in the genocide is the demonization, the portrayal of the other as threat, the, uh, uh, the, the the creation of this fear, of this hate, uh, and and then it becomes re- reinforcing, self-reinforcing. that the man on the street, for example, when he or she heard the story many times. Would themselves then be in fear for the for from what happened, and then mm-hmm. they might begin to conduct themselves in a fearful way, and this becomes contagious, and then at one point uh, things just uh, get out of hand, and then it will be difficult to to uh, uh, and again as I I look at the example for example of. Uh, <clears throat> Even in Yugoslavia itself, for example, the role of intellectuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in Bosnia, for example, the role of uh, Izzet as the leader of mm-hmm. the Muslims there. Uh, he managed to uh, produce a more balanced, a more uh, restrained kind of narrative, uh, which uh, was taken by the people uh Kept them from engaging into uh, atrocities or mass atrocities, and uh, and so you can see uh, the role leaders or intellectuals or the international community can play into when they see these early warning signs, uh, encountering them. So I think the first is early warning signs. Mm-hmm. The second is the role of intellectuals in in um, encountering the. Uh, the the, the ugly narratives by producing uh, also counter narratives and more uh, restrained narratives and also courageous sometimes narratives because usually when these things start, uh, and again in Egypt this has become the case, uh, that anybody who tries to counter the narratives would uh, immediately find themselves... Uh, uh, demonize themselves, ostracize and even prison. So it is not an easy thing, but uh, there is a crucial role, I think, for intellectuals this. Hmm.
0: So a couple questions that maybe on the surface are about the project, but maybe I hope have broader significance. And the first is that you work in, in politics and international relations, but but it seems like, at least from from what you say in the book, that that you really intentionally intended the authors of these essays to come from a wide variety of disciplines. Well, why did you think this was important?
1: Yes, I think for our uh, from our perspective, since we are looking at narratives, uh, first we wanted people who are aware of the kind of narratives which are being. Uh, told and, and, and circulated either prior to violence or during it or after. And for this reason, we had people from the countries involved who understand the languages and also have been following the history. Uh, a lot of them are also experts in literary criticism and, 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 mm-hmm. and, um, and literature, which is also significant. The, the peace from Nigeria in particular was very insightful in the way it has managed to, uh, to find out how narratives circulated mainly by leaders have led to this kind of uh, polarization in the country. And also, uh, especially in the peace of Kenya, also was predictive, for example, indirectly about possibilities of further problems. Uh, and so we a uh, piece on Yugoslavia, for example, also because uh, Markovic has very, uh, of course, direct knowledge about the history, but also about the texts in their original uh, language. Uh, a lot of people would have seen them in translation, but we needed somebody who is who knows the connotations and the very nuances of the language, how it's, how it's used. Uh, and so yes that was uh, that was crucial and I think we were very fortunate in having this uh, number of uh, of really bright uh, intellectuals who are also uh, sufficiently detached from the surrounding to give uh, an objective narrative but also sufficiently aware of the nuances and the and the histories to also give an in-depth uh, insight into what was going
0: on. Mm-hmm. And, and and one of the things I found really admirable and striking about the book is, is the selection of authors, not just from a, a variety of disciplinary perspectives, but from a variety of cultural and geographic backgrounds. Um, and the book has essays on some of the kind of canonical uh, uh, events in genocide or, or study of mass violence, but it also talks about as you say, Nigeria, uh, some of the places which are less commonly referred to. Um, what was your purpose in kind of thinking about the, the selection of topics?
1: Yes, I, I think that the, the, the old traditional cases of genocide have been overstudied mm-hmm. and probably most of the insights that already could be garnered from them has been uh, there. And so we wanted to bring Uh, a little bit of a wider angle, to look at a wider angle. Uh, India, for example, we're lucky to have uh, my colleague here, Dibesh Anna, who uh, was very also insightful about how the narratives of demonization and and the insecurity uh, plays together, uh, as usual in in these cases, uh, uh, self-aggrandizement and also insecurity. Usually, this is what we have seen with the Nazis and others. That usually these uh, these narratives uh, either show the Aryan race, for example, as invincible, but at the same time completely insecure and uh, uh, facing danger from uh, very uh, uh, marginalized groups. Uh, we see this in India. We seen this a little bit in, in the Nigerian case. Uh, Iraq, of course, is a is a different case, which is. Uh, I think it's a classical case about how the insecurity of the regime there has driven violence to unprecedented levels, but then generated insecurities among groups and between groups. Uh, So I think the wider angle and the the number of uh, new cases was very important uh, addition uh, to bring new insights. So we had. The focus on on narratives and the uh, the side, uh, and the focus on new cases, both of them, uh, hopefully, should bring uh, very important new insights to genocide
0: studies. I have to say, it's, a, it's I very much enjoyed the book, and I learned a lot from it. Um, all of the essays were wonderful. Uh, I, I as you pointed to the Nigerian one, I, I was especially struck by that essay. But we've taken a lot of your time, so I just ask you a, a couple kind of concluding questions that that I try to ask the authors I have on the show. And, and the first one is, is, to give you a chance, is there a book or something about the subject, whether it's an academic book or a memoir or maybe a film or something, what What should somebody stop what they're doing now that they're done listening to the podcast, Um and go find at the library. What would you suggest?
1: Well, first, what's the matrix? <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: th-
1: I think that's a brilliant uh, piece about how, for example, you can find terrorism as, glorify as uh, to glorify terrorism and show that it is really the terrorist as hero or mm. the one, as uh, they put it. Uh, when you portray really the situation as one which... Uh, if you are looking from that perspective, uh, uh, how, how this, uh, how how you could really construct a world where violence and and terrorism would be really the way. Yeah. Uh, Books-wise, I would uh, I think Omar Bartov's uh, Mirrors of Destruction is really mm-hmm. insightful, and also Jack Simmelin's um, uh, Purify and Destroy. Both of them mm-hmm. actually touch on many of the. Uh, important issues uh, we we looked at here especially about a construction of victims and about uh, about how maybe narratives uh, they might not have gone as far as we have uh, done in showing that narratives themselves are central but they also look at that uh, at way narratives and how people uh, see their world by or narrativeize their world
0: excellent and last what are you- what are you working on now? Uh, two things at the moment. A small project I'm working on
1: now is about uh, religion and violence in Africa, which mm. I'm going to present uh, next April at the conference in uh, for the African Union. Uh, but uh, uh, in book wise, I'm returning to the central issue I started with about terrorism and violence, mm-hmm. and especially in the. Uh, and the Arab, system, the Arab political system, uh, the fate of Arab democracy after the spring. Now mm-hmm. it has been engulfed in so much really violence, which was unimaginable even before the spring, but is more unimaginable after it. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to really uh, go in depth to explain why 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 have we sunk so low. <laughs>
0: After being so high. <laughs> well, that sounds like a fascinating project, and I look forward to reading it. Uh, and I want to say thank you uh, for agreeing to do the inter- interview. I was very interested in what you had to say. And um, as I say, I look forward to what you're doing next.
1: Thank you very much, I really, I really enjoyed this.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Abdel Wahab Al-Effendi about his edited collection of essays entitled Genocidal Nightmares narratives of insecurity, and the logic of mass atrocity. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I'll talk with Daniel Feierstein about his new book titled Genocide as Social Practice, Reorganizing Society Under the Nazis and Argentina's Military Junta. In the meantime, thanks for the download and have a great month.